electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. And welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, stocks on pace for another week of gains, record inflows into equities and technology. What is signaling about where this market goes from here? We'll discuss and debate the next steps for your money with the Investment Committee. Joining us for the hour today, Jim Laventhal, Pete Nigerian, Shannon Sakosha, Chief Investment Officer at Boston Private Wealth, and Jenny Harrington, CEO and Portfolio Manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. Let's get a check on the markets here. Um, in a little bit of a pause after we close at record highs for the S&P as well as the NASDAQ yesterday. S&P up by two-tenths of a percent. Same for the NASDAQ. The Dow looking almost unchanged. The real action, if you can call it action, on the Russell, which is the outperformer for the week. So what did we make of the week, Pete? And it may seem like a quiet day today, but the context, as always, is the most important thing. We have gone through the bulk of earnings season. Earnings have been very good. We've gotten yeah. earnings from big technology, the leaders of the market. They have been good. And here we are still sitting at record highs. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, Mel. And if you go through the earnings, yeah, they started off with the banks. The banks' earnings themselves were really strong, but some of the reaction, obviously, is what happens, it seems like, time and time again. But overall, that move has moved back up to the upside. We look at the 10-year, and you can suddenly see a lot of the different banks, not just the financials, starting to move to the upside. And you look over at the financials each and every day, and it's Capital One, it's Goldman Sachs, it's Morgan Stanley. They just continue to move to the upside, the Wells Fargo's of the world. So we've got that sort of on the backdrop. But also, how about this run in oil? This just continues to run to the upside, and we've watched energy. Now, it seems like we go up a little bit, Mel, and then we step back just slightly, then up. And that just seems to be the direction that we're going when we're talking about oil, because we take a look at where crude is right now as it's pushing towards closer and closer to $60 a barrel. And these beta names have been absolutely on fire. We've had nice moves out of Chevron and Exxon and the usuals. But it's that next level down where you're getting those really big hits from the Occidentals of the world, the Devons and some of those different types of names. So I think this is a little bit more broad than people talk about. I think when, we, when you really break it down and then you look at just technology itself and you look at the NASDAQ, it isn't just about technology. It's semiconductors. It's a biotech. Semiconductors and biotech, biotech seem to hit new all-time highs it feels like almost every day and then we get the pullback and then everybody gets a little bit nervous and then all they do is reload so um i think there's a lot of reasons right now to just try to not fight the markets mm -hmm. and just try to ride along with the markets especially with volatility trading as low as it is right now mel i am glad that you brought up oil because i was watching intraday crude prices pete and they are pushing uh, to intraday highs at this point we've got brent pushing to 62 here and this is probably the most hated trade or amongst the most hated trades in the markets that have gone higher. And as Pete had mentioned, energy is, is among the leadership groups in today's session with the XLF up by almost a percent at this point. Um, Leibenthal, where do you stand here on, on energy? Yeah, well, I think it's a great question. Thanks for asking it, because part of why energy is high right now is because of unexpected discipline from OPEC+. Plus. 
and frankly, not just OPEC plus, but the shale producers. Everybody has sort of stepped back and let prices go up without flooding the market with supply. That's unusual. That's a huge contributor. Uh, I also think, and this may be a little bit provocative, but I think this administration is making it very clear, not this part is provocative, very clear that they don't want fossil fuels. And the actions that they're taking are likely to uh, raise the prices of crude oil and natural gas going forward. I'm not taking a political stance in this. I'm just simply saying if you uh, refuse permits for pipelines, then it's going to be harder to get that supply onto market. So on the margins, that will increase crude oil prices as well. So you put this all together and it looks pretty good for energy prices to stay where they are, particularly, I didn't even mention demand. If demand starts picking up as the vaccines get rolled out and we start traveling again, this looks like a good year for energy, Mel. What was, that, what was the provocative part of that? <laughs> Did I miss, well, Did the I provocative miss it? Part, <laughs> No, the thing is, is I don't want to make it a political discussion, Melissa. Sure. You know, I don't want to say who's right or wrong. Right. It's just clearly the policies of this administration are designed to create bottlenecks in the supply of oil. Yeah, you make it harder to drill for oil. You make it harder to get oil onto the market. It's a supply and demand issue. Oil prices go higher. So, Shannon, do you buy into that? Is oil a place to be at this point? I think it represents such a small part of the of the index at this point, Melissa. It's really hard to make a, a case that you want to try to pick one of these um, major oil companies and continue to build around it. So we have very limited energy exposure in our uh, portfolios. And the reason is, is that we see better opportunities in other parts of the market. I do not disagree with Jim's modestly provocative statement that um, <laughs> the energy renaissance here in the United States absolutely contributed to the fact that we've had depressed energy prices over the last few years. Um, you know, we have more supply. I do think that supply will continue to come online. I do not think OPEC Plus will continue to be as um, as disciplined as they have been. Uh, you know, I think that there are a lot of things that impact that those relationships that are outside of, um, you know, our purview. But I do think that if you're looking at your overall portfolio, where you want to be, we have, as I said, limited energy exposure. We're in EOG and Valero like those names, but I wouldn't be adding significantly to my energy exposure in this environment because I do think that there's going to be some cross pressure on oil prices later this year. Yeah, um, we are watching the XLE push to session highs at this point with Brent up by more than 2% right now. We're watching it tick higher. Um, so Jenny, I will go to you. You know, wrapped up in Jim's modestly provocative statements is the notion of inflation. <laughs> and we saw that also highlighted in the UBS report where, where they say, you know, you ride the spike train. You saw hospitalizations, you saw stimulus come in response to the hospitalizations and the rise in COVID cases. That stimulus heats up the economy. That heating up of the economy leads to inflation. And while it may be in pockets of the economy, there will be inflation. I'm wondering if that is part of your investment thesis, because it looks like oil falls squarely into that. Right. So with respect to inflation and our investment thesis, we're always long term. I think when I'm thinking about inflation, and what the impacts on that are as as we invest, what we can look to is in 2020, when the 10 year went from 1.6 dropped to about half a percent and started to move back up. But when it dropped, what happened was it basically added three multiple points to the broader market. And that happened in a very bifurcated way. I think that the three multiple points went disproportionately to the large end of the market. One of the things I'm th expecting is that as bond yields start to move back up, those three multiple points might be taken back out. And they might be taken back out in terms of 
the big names that got them just plateauing and the earnings growing into them. But for my investment thesis for the portfolio that I manage, that we all know is a dividend portfolio, kind of value-leaning, it's got a much lower multiple than the broader market. So I don't think that there's risk in those stocks that are trading at, dis- at a discount to the market and losing that. So inflation, you know, as it affects multiples in the market, that's something about it. Just one thing on energy that mm-hmm. I think is really unique and interesting. This is a technical, but as we get closer and closer to March, when when the price of oil plunged from what was it at 40 to 26, and then we got into that crazy thing in April and May where it went negative, that's actually, as those comps come in, there could be a big push in the momentum trade because you're going to have really, really favorable comps coming in, both in terms of earnings and share price appreciation off of those numbers. So there could actually be a shift in the momentum or some quantitative programs could start to push energy as we as we get to the 12 month anniversaries of that. Additionally, I heard that hedge funds are something like five short short energy five times more than anything else in their portfolios. So there are some technicals that could put further wind at the back of energy in this inflation, regardless of inflation and how that plays in. I'm sorry. Can we? Can oh, we and by the way, that? we are yeah. overweight. But can we repeat that, Zach? Because yeah. I actually think that is a provocative statement that hedge funds are five times more short energy than any other part of their portfolio? This this is what, of the short portfolio, this is what Mm -hmm. I heard on a call earlier this week. Um, And so I think that whether it's five times, whether, you know, whether that number is precise or not, I think directionally to me when I heard that, I thought, whoa, this is a really big statement. There's a big short position in energy. Uh And so as this momentum trade could push it, you know, maybe that erases, maybe, um, maybe those shorts are covered. And then, and I'm not, Please don't get me wrong. I am not saying we're going to see anything like the like this short chase that we saw over the past few weeks. I just think that as energy um, stocks start to improve, there's a lot of fundamental things that could play into pushing their share prices quite a bit higher. Right. I take away from that that energy is a very hated part of the market, Pete. I also take away from that yep. that this momentum that we're watching, you know, unfold even just right here before our eyes in terms of the energy stocks right. could actually mm-hmm. continue because of that short squeeze. Do you see in the options market, Pete, any sort of signs, fingerprints of, I don't know, the retail trader getting in on this, perhaps, maybe with very short dated options in energy? You know, that's a really good question, Mel, and it's something that we have seen time and time again and it, it was long before all of the conversations about GameStop and all the rest of it. You go back to November and you take a look at the XOP, which really is a great example of what I talk about when I say beta names, the Diamondbacks of the world, and all these various names that, that we throw out there. But when you take a look at what's been going on, Mel, since, call it, the start of November, uh, right around the election time to now, that run is absolutely extraordinary. And I think that this run, yes, I, I have seen a lot of option paper in a lot of these smaller next-level names. We've also seen it in the big names, though. So it, it, it's kind of gone across all of energy where I see um, huge option paper in the XLE, in names like Exxon and, and Chevron. But then all of a sudden you take the next tier down, the beta names as I call them, and you really see huge option paper that's been coming in there, it seems like, week after week, and continue. Now, if they're not always right. Are, there, are they always right with the timing? Absolutely not, because you're right. They do mostly go short-term, because these are short-term, looking-for-a-big-jump-type trades, and 
More of them have worked than not, so I think that's something that, that keeps them coming back into this trade. But this is a part because you mentioned it is such a hated trade, right? I mean, everybody wants clean energy and this and that and the other. But on the other side of it, you take a look at the price of oil and how it's run to the upside. And you take a look at a lot of these names that have really come off the mat, that were really sold off and just about to be put out to dead. And then suddenly we've had this big surge to the upside. So we have seen... Um, much more than normal uh, um, amounts of unusual option activity that has come into a lot of these oil names, but specifically more, more so, I think, to the next level oil names as opposed to the big guys. Yeah. Can you give us just an idea, Pete, of some of those beta names that you were talking about that's seeing heavy flows short term? Sure. I mean, I mean, we've seen it in the short term over the last couple of months in, in Apache, in Devon, in mm -hmm. Occidental, in Diamondback. I mean, you could go through a long list. Parsley. There's a lot of different names out there where we have seen this consistent sort. There are names that I'd never heard of, Mel, where I actually have to go back and look up. Hey, who is this? And what you know, I know it's an energy name, but I have to look up and, and, and sort of research it because they are reaching for some of those names where I think they were left for dead and maybe there's a little life left inside of them. So um, we're starting to see some of the paper and some of those names as well. All right, let's get to technology at this point. As we mentioned at the top, record inflows into the sector and the second best performer so far uh, this week. And of course, we have to talk about technology since it's the biggest part of the market. Uh, Jenny, where do you go in technology? Do, do you think that maybe valuations at this point are getting stretched? This is another tale of two cities. So you have the big tech, and I think on the big tech, valuations are stretched. I also don't think that that means that many of those companies need to trade down significantly. So if we're talking about Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, they could plateau. In fact, they mostly have plateaued since the end of September. Apple's up 5% since September. Amazon's down 5%. Microsoft's up 8 You know, it's just Facebook is down 8 So they've kind of plateaued. I don't think that you need to be in those, and I think this gets into the bigger thing, this like sick, this rotation that we're starting to see in the market. I think that you can look to the have-nots in the technology sector, and money can move into those, and then those can start to really improve off of the either lows that they saw last year or the or you know the the no performance that they saw last year. So I think there's a leadership change even within technology, and you see that too, Melissa. When you say we had some of the biggest flows into technology last week, but you know what? Tech is still up only about 6% on the year, where energy's up 16%. So it doesn't mean that tech's just on fire. I think the whole sector is balancing out. Right. And I don't think the big guys are seeing the huge flows. Yeah, and, and as Jenny had mentioned, there's a, there's a lot of push-pull within big cap technology. I mean, take a look at the call in Alphabet today. City raising its price target on, on Alphabet, um, but saying it's no longer the top pick. And some can argue that what we've seen in the share price of Alphabet over the past couple of months or so is a re-rating of the stock that it had deserved, that it should have never traded as low or underperformed the rest of its peers for, for quite some time, Jim. Where do you stand on, on this sort of call? Because they're saying that they, they are bullish in terms of growth. Um, in, from a dollar perspective on YouTube, on search, and all of these properties, but not as bullish as peers on the street? Well, when we talk about Alphabet, I mean, one of the things to talk about is Google Cloud um, that we weren't talking about a year ago, and now it's come up as a true competitor to Amazon Web Services and, and Microsoft Azure. Um, so I find that in and of itself very intriguing. Uh, but Mel, let me go back to what Jenny said, if, if you don't mind, because um, I take the other side. I think this is a perspective thing here. I know Jenny. We talk a lot. I know Jenny is thinking about IBM and Intel when she says what she says. 
I'm looking though at the big caps, the, the alphabets, the Facebooks and the Apple and I'm saying they are actually fine right here. What I'm worried about is the other end of the spectrum when you look at the software stocks, the Twilio's of the world, the Shopify's. I mean these are things that are trading at 50, 70 times sales. And that's where when we talk about tech and we question valuation, to me that's the area to question. Large cap tech at the multiples roughly around 30 times this year's earnings for Microsoft, uh, Facebook and Apple, uh, those guys will do fine this year. They may not lead the market, um, I think cyclicals will, but they'll do fine. It's the high flying stocks that have a lot of air underneath them. They could an air, hit an air pocket like uh, Zoom or Fastly did and be down 40% and still be expensive. So that's the area that worries me. Yeah, um, Fastly is an interesting Good case point, only Jim. in terms of its its customer concentration problem that it had had. But I take your point, Jim, in terms of if we are to believe that the economy is reopening, then should investors sort of reevaluate the high multiple technology stocks that they reach for in a period of lower economic growth because they wanted to pay up for that growth? Shannon, are you in that camp? Do you think that we need to sort of reevaluate those higher P.E. stocks? Absolutely. I, I think that in this environment, those felt safe, um, or in the previous environment, 2020, those felt safe because there was um, an undercurrent of uncertainty as it relates to the reopening trade, as it related to what does um, business enterprise spend come back to, where, where are we from a consumer spending perspective. Um, but I would also agree with Jim on, you know, if you look at where these businesses are going to continue to drive earnings, I mean, that's really what we're looking for in the back half of the year. We're looking for earnings growth to support the multiple expansion that we've seen. And if I have to put my bets on what companies can continue to drive stronger earnings, even with a regulatory overhang, even with the results that they've continued to post over the last year or so, I would still look at some of these big technology names like Alphabet, uh, like Apple, to be able to continue to grow earnings. And so I think it's important to differentiate if you're focused on the fundamentals and you believe that there is going to be differentiation and a return to emphasis on top line and bottom line growth, I think that you have to have some of these quality tech names in the core of your portfolio. Do you need to reach for outsized evaluations and expensive stocks in tech? Absolutely not. Jenny's right. You can find some things that are under underpriced relative to their peers. Um, but I do think that these still make sense from a core perspective. And what we're not seeing is what we were fearing last year, was that as we entered into this cyclical rotation, that people would be en masse selling their big tech stocks to fund purchases in areas like industrials, materials, and energy. We're not seeing that. We're seeing it come from the sidelines, which is exactly what we need to see to continue to see the indexes grow because technology is 28% of the S&P 500. So we, you know, we have to keep that in perspective. All right. Speaking of valuation, semis sitting near all-time highs, a global chip shortage. Uh, is really taking hold here. Josh Lipton taking a closer look at the state of the sector, what Wall Street is saying, and, and how the Biden administration plays into all of this. Josh. So, Melissa, let's start with the SMH, the ETF that, of course, tracks the chips. It's on track here for its best week since early November. The big gainers this week, names like Applied Materials, LAM Research, and KLA. Now, I checked in with RBC's Mitch Steves. There has been more news, we know, about at least the potential for a new government support for domestic chip manufacturing. If that happens, Mitch says these names could benefit. He has buys on Applied Materials and LAM Research. Looking ahead, Bernstein's Stacey Rasgon says one key question for chip investors 
What happens when pressure from this current chip shortage actually eases up? Do customers keep buying or are they going to have to pre- or do they over order and take a pause as they work through inventory? It's a big question that we don't have an answer to right now. So what does a chip investor actually do here? Stacy's saying stick with stocks with secular long-term tailwinds. For example, Qualcomm, he says, leveraging that 5G rollout. And he says, attractively valued names. Stacy says Broadcom fits the bill there. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton on the chip shortage. Um, Pete, we asked the question, what should an investor do? And you, an investor, bought AMD calls. Why? Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of different opportunities out there, Mel. I, I, I'm already in Marvell. I'm in the stock and the calls, but I'm, and I'm also in Micron Technology, and I, a lot of that is the 5G exposure that you can get out of both those two names. But when I look at AMD, the, the, least Sue's done an absolutely amazing job. We all know that, and that's a stock that we, I thought was going to break up and through 100 uh, probably over a month or more ago, and it just didn't happen. It just sort of faded back, Mel, and it's, it's hanging in the 90s. So I, I think there's opportunity there. And we had some option activity in there that, that stated to me that people are expecting some sort of a move still to the upside. I still think this is one of those premier names. They've obviously done away with Intel, it seems like, over the last couple of years. They've really done an amazing job of just dominating in that space and then creating even other areas where they've got plenty of growth. So I think AMD right now is probably still inexpensive at these levels. So I think there's upside. Now, has it stretched? It seems like it's stretched, but I think when you actually look forward and you look at the kind of growth they've got in all the categories that they are fulfilling, I think this is a stock that absolutely should and and will be over 100 in the not-too-distant future. Shannon, you agree? I think that chips are challenging right now because from an um, investment perspective, if we look at you know, how many different industries and sectors that the you know, potential you know, chip shortage could be impacting, you know, for, for chip manufacturers, right, you, know, you could see higher prices and better margins. Um, for everything else, though, you know, this downstream impact of you know, potentially higher chip prices, uh, I, you know, I think that they're a negative. We talk about this with energy a lot, right? This is great for energy producers. It's, it's pretty bad for everybody else. Um, and so I wonder a little bit about how investing in chip stocks, you know, it does tend to be somewhat cyclical um, and being able to pick you know, the particular chip. We have limited chip exposure. We've got ADI um, and we're comfortable with that exposure. But I think it's difficult for investors, unless you're doing something that Pete's talking about and investing in a broad range of chips, I think it's difficult to buy and hold for the longer term. And I know I have colleagues on this show that feel differently about that. Um, But I think that this chip shortage, the stress on um, some of the companies that are the downstream consumers of chips, I think that when we think about inflation, which you talked about at the top of the show, I think it's an important point to be looking at your portfolio and thinking about how that could manifest itself in the the coming quarter. Shannon, let me just um, clarify that then. Um, In in terms of the pressure, are you saying that because of a chip shortage, Ford is going to charge more for a pickup truck, or Sony's going to charge more for its console, or, you know, the list goes on and on? Well, yeah, well, I would sure like them to be able to, but Melissa, can they in this environment where we don't see consumer spending back to pre-pandemic? Right. It's, it's, this is margin. This is margin pressure for some of these downstream consumers, potentially, because I don't think that they can push that pricing pressure through. So good if you're going to own chips, as long as you're in the right companies. But I think the downstream pressure is going to be negative on a lot of these consumers of chips. Jim, there's a real bullish argument to be made if one is to believe that the economy is going to heat, up, heat back up again, that demand will, will increase across all sorts of goods that demand chips, that it's not just a chip shortage. We're actually 
um, you know, taking a look at a sector that is extremely, extremely cyclical and leveraged to that sort of reopening trade. At the same time, if we are to believe that the Biden administration is going to be successful in bringing back chip manufacturing to the United States, there is an argument for, you know, a LAM research and applied materials, um, an MKS, for instance, in terms of building out fabs and building out capacity here in the United States. You need that equipment. Where do you stand? So uh, let me summarize a very complex situation by saying I'm very bullish on the semiconductors and the equipment manufacturers. Um, let's just start with the fact that they are cyclical and we're in an early stage of an economic expansion that is likely to be fueled for the next couple of years by fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus, not to mention reopening. But to the, the problem that we have right now, it is being solved right now. I mean, let's, let's talk about Taiwan Semi. They announced about 18 months ago that they're going to open a, a very big plant in Arizona, a multi-billion dollar plant. Other companies are following suit. Um, so this problem was known ahead of time and it's being worked on. Most importantly, this is not just a chip problem. This is not just a U.S. problem. This is a global problem. The fact that President Biden is attacking it right now indicates that it's going to get attention from the highest levels. That's why I don't worry, for instance, about a General Motors, which reported great earnings this week, but sold off because of the chip shortage. The problem is going to be solved. Now, I don't know if that's six months, 12 months, or 18 months, but that's the sort of time frame during which the economy is going to continue to pick up. We already see demand whether, well, we'll just talk about autos. I mean, demand is through the roof for autos. Um, they frankly, you know, they're working overtime to try to get as many cars as they can back onto dealer lots. So I don't think the demand's going away, even if they have to curtail some of that supply because of the chips, not where we are in this economic cycle. All right. Despite the recent record highs for the major averages, there are still a number of big names, 10 to 20 percent off their 52-week highs. And Jenny, actually, you own several of these stocks. You're interested, though, in Pfizer. <laughs> Why? So Pfizer just reported earnings, and they actually had a really, really decent quarter. So what I look at is I look at a company that's now trading at 11 times earnings with a 4% yield. And in the earnings call, they said specifically, we do not think that our COVID vaccine is getting any credit in the share price. I think that's a pretty easy thing to prove out because you can see a share price that's not only off the high, but basically flat for over a year. One of the things we're hearing, and we don't know this for sure, but it's likely that we're going to need to continue to get COVID vaccines next year, the year after, the year after, and, many, and maybe you know a few years after that. If that's true, that vaccine could be a huge source of revenues for Pfizer that's not even remotely priced into the stock. So little things like that make me pretty positive and, and excited um, for that list of things that are still off their highs. There's a lot of potential in the market. And to Jim's you know, constant point is it's a stock picker's market this year. It's exciting I, I to find things like this. I have a like question this. for you, though, Jenny. Why is the assumption that even mm -hmm. if you have to get re repeat vaccinations, that the price of the vaccine will remain oh. high? I mean, aren't vaccines usually commoditized oh, over time, and so therefore the price comes down, and so it's going to be less of an impact for Pfizer? They're making no money off of it right now, right? They're making nothing off of it right now. So it's just a source of revenue. I wouldn't say the price remains high. I would just say it becomes revenue producing in a positive way for them in the future. Got it. All right. Disney, streaming uh, subscriber numbers, but shares pulling back after hitting all-time highs or experts debate what to do with this stock from here. Halftime Report returns in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. 
which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. I'm Courtney Reagan. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The Biden administration plans to allow about 25,000 asylum seekers into the U.S. so they can attend their immigration court hearings. The border crossings are set to begin next Friday. Two men accused of helping former Nissan chairman Carlos Ghosn flee Japan while awaiting trial on fraud charges are asking the Supreme Court to delay their extradition. A lower court ruling had cleared the way for them to be handed over to Japan. Three Fox News anchors have filed motions to dismiss claims against them and their employer as part of the libel suit brought against them by voting machine company Smartmatic. They say the case fails to specify defamatory acts. And star defensive end J.J. Watt has left the Houston Texans. Watt said he and the team mutually agreed to part ways. Watt had one year left on a six-year, $100 million contract. That's your CNBC News update for this hour. Back over to you, Melissa. It's a lot of money to walk away from. Courtney, thank you. Courtney Reagan. Uh, Disney hitting all-time highs after a strong earnings beat. Most of you own it. Pete, you actually sold your calls, though. Why? Yeah, I was in it for the trade, Mel. I, we actually had some unusual option activity in earlier in the week, actually on Monday in here. And it, uh, you know, I love this name. I feel like it is a little bit stretched. I understand the ecosystem of how well they've done with streaming. And when you look at that, those numbers, Mel, they're absolutely extraordinary. And you got to put your take your hat off to Disney in, in terms of that report. 146 million. They are not that far behind Netflix if you combine the entire ecosystem of streaming. So those were great numbers. The stock actually popped up. I got out of my calls immediately. I feel like it's a little stretched. Sooner or later, they will start to open. They will start to see the parks come back, the cruise ships come back, and a lot of the other areas where they got so much revenue that that will absolutely impact the company. But for right now, it's all about streaming. So I'm, I'm more concerned about trying to trade it because I don't feel like I can own it right now and feel all that comfortable. It's all about streaming, and should we be concerned about the quality of those streaming numbers, even though they look fantastic at first blush? I mean, in terms of the average revenue per user, uh, Shannon, it looks like those numbers, that number is down year on year. Last year, we were looking at average revenue per user, ARPU, of $5.56. This year, we're looking at $4.03. That's a decline of 28% 
over the past year. Do we care about the quality of the number or do we only care about the number? Well, this is not inconsistent with the argument that we've been having about Netflix for years, right? So I think what's what's included in that is that it is some lower cost international subscriptions mm-hmm. um, that are incorporated into that number, as well as the annualizing of some of the um, subscribers that were free uh, previously through the Verizon arrangement falling off of um, the subscription rolls. The reality is, though, is that, you know, if you if you take out the international, which is always going to be lower margin, it's it's all about getting the footprint expanded. We see the same thing on the Netflix side. Uh, The strength of this is that they have exceeded, vastly exceeded the number of subscribers. And, uh, you know, the take here over the next couple of quarters is to see how many of these subscribers that were free initially are remaining on the subscriber rolls. And I do believe that that's going to be pretty strong. The thing about Disney in this environment is that we were looking for the parks revenue to fund Disney Plus, and now we're looking at Disney Plus as as outperforming, and now we have the tailwind of improving parks revenue. Timing that, Melissa, is going to be difficult. We don't know exactly when they're going to get back to full capacity or even 75% capacity, Um, but either way, it's going to be a tailwind, and the business will be stronger post-pandemic versus pre-pandemic on the basis of the strength in Disney Plus. Theoretically, transparency can only get better from here, theoretically. Jenny, you own Disney. Right, and Pete and Shannon just covered pretty much everything I'd like to say about it. We look out definitely until 2022, and we say exactly what Shannon said, which is the post-pandemic Disney will be stronger than the pre-pandemic. So if you look at 2018 earnings, they were earning $7 a share. You look at 2022, and you need to just throw this year's earnings away. You look at 2022, and you can add on streaming, you can add on Fox, you can add on the opening of, um, of the Star Wars. And this is really interesting. And you think about all the pent-up demand. I know so many people who had to cancel their Disney trips. So I think there's some bigger picture things that are interesting in thinking about Disney, too. And one of them is where 2020 took away future revenues from Disney, right? that those revenues are going to be paid for maybe in the second half of 2021 and definitely into 2022. You can look at other companies like Apple, and I would argue that revenues are paid forward into 2020. But Disney, I think there's so much pent-up demand. We're going to see that come up in 2021 and 2022. But there's other stuff that's important, too, here, which is in December they had an analyst day. And Bob Chapek gave guidance for, for, um, for what the subscriber numbers would be. And we're back to a point where we can believe in guidance again and we can believe in numbers and we can have functional expectations that are likely to come about in the next year. So there's a real shift in, the, in these earnings reports this quarter, but particularly in Disney, where I think we can get back to normal in our yeah. investment process. We don't need to rely on hype and stories. We can actually look at numbers, forecasts, and believe them to be highly likely to be accurate and true in the next few years. A Disney bear, though, Jim, might say that hype is part of where of of how disney got to where it is right now in terms of multiple hype around the streaming part of the story Uh, the belief that perhaps it should have a little bit of the same valuation as a netflix or another hot streaming service and yet this is disney so how do you how do you sort of tackle that valuation question because right now it is expensive when when you compare it to itself or should that old playbook be completely thrown out because we are witnessing a re-rating of disney Mel, I'm so sorry. That wasn't static. That was me sort of gasping when you said that. Um, Look, this is a public service announcement for all of our viewers. If you are looking at the multiple on Disney's stock this year, stop. 
Stop, okay? I don't care about the 100 times, and nor should you. You have to understand, take 2019, the theme parks were 45% of operating income. They're zero right now. To what Jenny and Shannon and everybody is saying is when you look at 22 and they're back online, plus you've got streaming probably in 2023 contributing earnings. I mean, these multiples get back to where Disney was a few years ago in the high 20s and frankly where it deserves to be. So sometimes you don't believe people when they say they're going to grow into the earnings, but this time you can clearly see how much theme parks matter and where direct-to-consumer is going. Yep, and Jim, you do own Disney as well. All right, stay with us. We've got Pete's latest trades and unusual activity straight ahead. As we head to break, a check on S&P 500 sectors. We've got energy. We talked about that top of the show, leading the way up 1.2%. Stay tuned. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Time for unusual activity. So Pete, what are you watching? Well, the first one I got for you is in the financial world, Mel, and I mentioned that earlier, how we're seeing more and more of that, and we've had some nice movement out of some of these financial names. This one's a bank, Wells Fargo. If you just go back to February 2nd, Mel, we had a huge buyer out there. Their stock was trading about 3060. We had a buyer of 28,000 of the April 32 and a half calls. Well, those are already starting to work really, really well for that trader. And as a matter of fact, now with the stock trading at 33, we're talking about a, about a $3 move to the upside. That's great. Now today we're seeing more buyers. They're going out to May though. So they're buying a little time, which we hadn't seen in the past. A buyer of 10,000 of the May 37 and a half calls, Mel. Those are going for about $1.10. A big chunk of that in one single print. So that just tells me they continue to see the banks as something to the upside. Next I got for you is Carnival Cruise. Now this is another one where when you look at the range, it's been between 15 and 21 since all the way back to last May. Here we are pushing towards 20 again, 21 again. It's trading around 2060. And we got a buyer of the February. We got two weeks basically for these. February 26th, the 21 call. So they're just out of the money. And they bought 13,000 of these calls for approximately 85 cents up to a dollar again a big chunk of that in one single print. So I love when we see these kinds of trades. I'm going to be in both these trades. I've got a couple of months to trade out of Wells Fargo, and this one I've got a couple of weeks to trade out of CCL. So we'll see if Carnival's got some upside. All right, thanks for that, Pete. We are tracking the Investment Committee's latest moves, plus it is a big week ahead for earnings. The trades are next on Halftime. Big week of earnings next week, and uh, Jim, you're watching CVS in particular. Yeah, CVS has been a gift every time they report earnings recently. The last three quarters, they've really exceeded estimates. But the, but the gift I really look for is what they do with the balance sheet. Mel, they took out a ton of debt about two years ago to acquire Aetna, and they've been generating free cash flow from that and paying the debt down every quarter. That's the gift because as they keep paying down debt, the multiple is going to go up. Very cheap stocks, sometimes that's a pejorative to say that. Not in this case. The multiple is going to expand along with earnings over the next year. Yeah, we're also watching a lot of hotel stocks reporting earnings next week. And Jenny, you own Marriott in particular. Right. And this we look at the same way Jim was talking about how you look at Disney. You throw out this year's earnings, look to 20, 
2019's earnings where they earned $6. They're going to come out of the pandemic better off than they went into it. They'll have 10% more rooms under management. They've fully, um, fully integrated Starwood. And most of all, they're going to have huge pent-up demand. Oh, and they cut costs during COVID. So throw out what they actually report, look for the future, and expect really good numbers in the future. All right. I want to get to a, a portfolio update that's really interesting. This one comes from Pete. Pete, you sold Twitter. You sold Twitter as yeah. it uh, closes in on a 10-day winning streak, its best week potentially in six years. Why'd you get out? Well, Mel, I've, I've owned that stock for a really long period of time. I went back and looked at this thing, and I've been in there for uh, quite a few months, and the stock has really performed well. Obviously, going into the election, that was a big deal. And then post-election, it still continues to be a big deal. You just mentioned this run that it's on even right now. It got up, I think I got out somewhere close to about 65, Mel. It's done nothing but continue to go to the upside. So just as an update, during the show, I actually bought Twitter calls. So I might be out of the stock, but I got back into calls and see a lot of activity in there as well. Uh, I didn't like I didn't dislike the stock. I just felt like the run had been incredible. So I figured I better take it off. And now I've got the option, at least to the upside. Yeah. If it runs over the next couple of weeks, I, I can hold on to that. The old stock replacement strategy. Shannon, where do you stand on, on Twitter or another social media stock? So I, we own Facebook. Um, you know, that's that's <laughs> that's always seems like it's a bit of a. Um, an unpopular opinion, but you know we think that there continues to be um, growth and opportunities in Facebook, and we and we do think that over the course of the next six to nine months, with the regulatory overhang, that we could see some pressure on Facebook stock. Uh, but if you look at sort of the depth and breadth, the ability to grow ad spend, um, that's where we we think Facebook's going to continue to do that as maligned as the company is, um, and and ebbs and flows with with Zuckerberg's uh, comments. So. Do you think the regulatory pressure will? ease as time goes on, Shannon, or increase or say the same? So I think a lot of over the course of the last two months in particular, we've seen a significant interest in the regulatory overhang. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm less concerned about is that being a near term concern. I think that President Biden has plenty on his plate. I actually think that trade policy is going to come first well before worrying about uh, big tech regulation. And I think that it's still very much un misunderstood in Washington how to regulate these companies. And so I think that, you know, whether it's Facebook or Google, um, which are currently, you know, under scrutiny. Um, either from the DOJ or the FTC, there is going to be a path where these CEOs are going to help the government navigate how to regulate their businesses. I want to be clear about that. I think that there will be cooperation, and therefore, why, while we would look for potentially some overhang in the M&A space, there's a lot of homegrown innovation. I've talked about it on the show before in, in these companies that I think can continue to drive higher revenues for them at the top line. All right. We got a lot more trades ahead on the halftime report. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We will be back in two minutes. Time for your futures outlook week ahead with a slew of economic data on deck. Jeff Kilberg is looking to put together some protection. Jeff, take us through it. We have a big week ahead. Certainly is going to be interesting because it's a shortened week. It's only four trading days. But nonetheless, we are seeing earnings season wrap up. We've had about 350 companies report in the S&P 500. And in the wake of new all-time highs, I am a little cautious going into the week. Look at some of the data coming out. We have PPI. We also have retail sales. 
Retail sales should help us have a better understanding of what the consumer is actually doing. But inside of this caution and in the wake of those new all-time highs, I want to be a seller of the S&P 500 March futures contract. I'm looking to sell at 39.25, looking for a drop down to just 38.25. However, we always trade futures with stops and 50 handles higher. I want to be stopped out in the event we see another new all-time high at 39.75. This is a two to one risk reward. I'm risking $2,500 to make 5,000. Thanks, Jeff. We'll see how you did next week. All right, Ask Halftime is next. You can email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com. Back right after this. Welcome back. We had to squeeze this one in, Pete. This is a fascinating move on your part, <laughs> I thought. You initiated a position in a sundial growers. Not even the, op you bought the actual mm. Stock. This is one that is hot on right. the Reddit chat boards. It's being diamond handed left and right. Mm -hmm. um, so, so why'd you do this? Yep. Well, they've had just an absolutely incredible amount of option activity in there, Mel. I mean, just to give you an example, yesterday, Sundial actually led the markets in terms of the volume of 2.6 million contracts. So there's just been so much activity there. And that activity is not just yesterday or the day before. That activity has been building for a while now. And it was just something where I'd seen some activity in there about a week or so ago. I'm looking at the stock, and I thought, you know what? The stock is basically priced almost like an option, so I'd rather have a position in the stock. But this is a trade. I'm not looking at fundamentals. I'm not looking at the rest of it. This is truly a trade, and I'm seeing all that option activity. Some of it's going out a little bit in time, going out towards June and so forth. So um, there's just an incredible number of buyers there. It just got my attention. I, uh, I jumped in, and I will not be in here very long, Mel. All right. We got the final trades next on halftime. The investment committee is answering your questions. First up, Jenny, Sam from Mississippi writes for Jenny. What is your current thinking on Lumen? And you actually um, took advantage of the pullback. I did. I listened to the earnings call after they reported this week. And it's so useful to listen to those because you're often reminded of exactly why you own this. You do not own a moonshot here. Do not buy this for a trading vehicle. Own this because it's a company that, that mints $4 billion of free cash flow. They're improving margins. They're paying down debt. They're struggling with revenue growth. And they're going to pay you an 8.5% dividend yield that you can really count on through thick and thin. Own it for that. Own it if that fits your portfolio, which it does for me. But don't pretend it's something that it's not. It's a big dividend yielder with like almost no growth. All right. This one's for Shannon. Jack in North Carolina wants to buy a casino stock for the long term. He asks which one has the best fundamentals and potential going forward between GM, Wynn Resorts, Las Vegas Sands and Penn. What do you say? No offense to what DraftKings and Penn are doing here in the United States with online sports betting, but if we want to be in gaming, we want to be in Macau. Las Vegas Sands is the best position uh, gamer in Macau, and they are going to reinstate their dividend in the coming quarters, which I think is another plus for the stock. All right, let's get to the final trades here for this Friday. Jim Lavins, I'll kick it off. Yep, uh, Qualcomm, it got knocked down about 10% after earnings. That was just profit-taking, and now it's reconsolidated and ready to move higher. Jenny. National Retail Properties reported that they're collecting 96% of rents and they're still down 26% off this time last year, 4.9% dividend yield. Shannon. Healthcare is going to continue to grow. By Merck, they're focusing on specialty oncology and it's, where, what's, it's what they do best. Pete, I'm still thinking about your sundial purchase. 
Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm just taking a look at it. Um, you know, Jim talked about semiconductors. We talked about that earlier in the show. Marvell, we see some huge call buying in there. I think this is a stock that you have to own. I think it's going higher. I will see you, Pete, and the rest of you out there on Fast Money at 5 tonight. That does it for us on the Halftime Report. Great yeah. to be with you on this Friday. The exchange with Dom Chu begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.